Alan Kring Productions, in association with the Emergent Light Studio, presents the Illinois State Collegiate Compendium, Academic Lectures in Business and Economics. This is Business Finance, FIL 240 for Spring Semester 2023. Today, capital budgeting. And I would make the note that this is a subject that a long time ago would have been just a pain in the butt, the calculation of it. But it is all now in uh, your calculator actually is somewhat more efficient for these problems than Excel. But I will, of course, show you the Excel because if you had to actually do this in a work environment or something like it, you, you would want documentation of what you had done, which isn't what a calculator is for. But one way or the other, a quick look at the numbers here just to see. The markets have just been odd. They had a really heavy drop right on the opening. And then they've been crawling their sorry butts back up all through the day. And interestingly enough, as you can see, we've got that odd thing that's shown up in the last few trading sessions where the Dow's doing better than the S&P, which is doing better than the NASDAQ. It's just something, uh, uh, whatever there is driving the markets, it seems to be more favorable to the larger, the larger the companies are that are under consideration. So that's something just to keep an eye on for the for what's coming up in the next few days, next few weeks. But um, very quickly here, going over, crude oil has is heading back down into that trading band of 72 to 79. And you'll recall that I actually said this is going to probably happen, is that these OPEC plus uh, oil uh, production contractions to raise a price they are very hard to enforce, and lo and behold, the price spiked up. Everyone, oh my God, and now suddenly the price of oil is coming back down, simply because production is not disappearing, and the, there's plenty of oil on the high seas. Interestingly, uh, in uh, several of the trade journals I was following this weekend, they said there's another odd factor that's showing up is demand for oil products is going, is weak. In other words, people aren't buying as much gas. And that, of course, will put a damper on price right there. So uh, you may see the price of gasoline start to slide back down because the gas stations are going to try to bring people into the stations because people just aren't buying as much gas as they were. So good news for those who like to not, don't like wiping out their whole paycheck on gas. Now, gold and silver, they, gold had crossed that magic $2,000 an ounce uh, neckline, and now it's skidding back down, trying to go, go below it as fears of the economic end of the world fade and the gold bu bugs are going back into hiding. So that's good news. Now here's an interesting thing. The euro dollar 
it had surged and there was talk of a dollar ten for a euro a dollar twelve for a euro now that's not happening as you can see the euro started to depreciate against the dollar if I pull this up here it it went off a cliff uh, around noon today and the dollar started strengthening this drop is strengthening of the dollar appreciation of the dollar in other words up here at the worst of it today it costs a dollar nine to buy a euro by this trough right here it costs only a dollar eight and 0.35 to buy a euro so in other words the euro is depreciating against the dollar the dollar is appreciating against the euro now it has found some strength again right now we're at what about 108.62 now these are small numbers but they have important meaning where is this going as the dollar begins to weaken which it had done you see how the dollar had been weakening against the euro overall that means that our exports get cheaper in other countries and other countries imports get more expensive here as the dollar weakens it softens up however now the dollar is getting it's trying to find its strength again and as that happens imports will become cheaper uh, imports will become uh, more affordable and our exports will become more expensive so going back here we see that the dollar is appreciating against the euro or put another way the euro is depreciating against the dollar although it's had a little bit of a strength right there and if you look at the uh, British pound the pound it's doing the same thing there the dollar is the pound is weakening the dollar is strengthening although again you see a little bit of weakening of the dollar right through there now the Japanese uh, the yen is backwards they quote it opposite so we're seeing the green there but that means that the yen is actually depreci uh, depreciating against the dollar the only reason they put this one backward from the other ones is because yen are so so minimal they're like a, a penny or a couple of pennies so that's why they do that now coming on, oh oh the bonds there was a rally in the bonds the yields went up the uh, rally yield, yield rally but that means that the price went down so there was a sell-off of bonds and that drove the yields up a little bit right now they're up about 13 basis points probably because the expectation is that the Fed will do one more interest rate hike before it ends its fight against inflation and so the markets are going to reflect that when they because of the expectation of it happening so yields are going to be pushed up a little bit uh, because of that the Fed pushing one more rate hike on us London uh, well Japan oddly enough it started out with a spike some news overnight and then uh, in Tokyo and then that spike kind of fizzled out and the rest of the day there wasn't anything good or bad it just floated it's uh, there wasn't any more news and so it finished 
you know, a little bit up, less than half a percent. London, all through the day over there, and I think their market is closed. Yeah, it's closed now. There was just a slow, steady rise, positive sentiment in the in uh, in uh, London, and so it just kept rising. It wasn't spectacular; it was about 0.89 percent, but still, eh, they're looking pretty chipper over there. On our end, though, of course, we God, we started out in a bad mood, but then it's just been crawling up. It's probably. By the end of the by, by when the bell rings in about 50 minutes, we'll probably see all three of these just barely positive or just barely negative. So it'll uh, so you can't really read much. The markets right now seem to be looking for reasons to be pessimistic or optimistic, and it's kind of hard to tell what's going to happen at this point. Uh, just, you know, there's some data that's really good, some data that's kind of scary. Manufacturing has shown some weakness and um, all of that, but that uh, the, un the jobs outlook is not as good as it was. It was weaker than expected, which bad news because, of course, not as many jobs. Good news because that's going to knock the Fed off its high horse with the rate increases. In other words, the economy is cooling off. So the Fed has to stop raising interest rates pretty soon or it's going to throw us into a bad recession. Well, that's it for that. I'm going to tell you a story for a little bit here. And you'll say, well, why the hell is he doing that? Matter of fact, every time I get my reviews back, I don't see them until the next semester. There's a few students, he went off on some tangent that means nothing to anyone. Okay, fine, if that, uh, but I'm still gonna tell you this, because it has meaning now, interestingly enough, but the story starts in the Middle Ages, of all places. Bear with me, because you get where I'm going with this after a while. But the Middle Ages, is a lot of folks think that the Middle Ages was the Dark Ages. And we try to dispel that. There were good times and there were bad times in the Middle Ages. In fact, in the 1200s, the weather in Europe and Britain were, was amazingly pleasant warm springs and hot summers and just a good growing season. Harvests were just uh, abundant. It got so impressive, in fact, in some of the census books that were kept at the time, we saw ownership by people who weren't nobility, which that can't, that's not supposed to happen, but that was the way it was. In general, though, the um, system that was in place in Europe and Great Britain was called the feudal system. Land was owned by the nobility, the powerful, the wealthy, and everyone else pretty much lived on the land of the nobles. They, we call them serfs, that's not really the good word for it. A, a more appropriate term is villains, villagers. They lived for many generations on the land of their lord and they took care of the crops of the lord and had some for themselves, took care of the animals, had some for themselves. And it was a system that actually kind of worked. But after the 1200s, 
the weather turned really bad. It's called a, it was a mini ice age. And we can pretty much track it back to a volcano that blew its ass off uh, somewhere else in the world. And it covered the earth in a kind of cloudy skies, dusty cloudy skies, and it got cold, miserable. And this was in the 1300s. And the result of bad times like that is that greed becomes more of a way of life, especially for rich people. Now, this isn't the first time this had happened in history. And we find the, what happened at this point, we see it in civilizations in Samaria, in uh, times in Asia. We've seen it in modern times, too. It was called an enclosure movement. Essentially, the lords who owned the land told all of these many millions of people who lived on the land to get out, leave. They had lived there for generations and generations, but these powerful lords who owned the land said, go, get off the land. You can come back for the planting and the harvest, but otherwise leave. We don't want you here, and we'll have our mercenaries kill you if you don't go. And so in a very short period of years, suddenly the roads in Europe and England were full of miserable people leaving the land that they, had, they and their ancestors had lived on. Now, as is typical, there were all of these rumors running rampant that there were places they could go for jobs and for food. And that's just very common. As a matter of fact, if you've read the book, The Grapes of Wrath, in the Great Depression, all of these people from Oklahoma and Nebraska and Kansas and all that, they packed up, they said, well, we heard that California is the land of milk and honey. We go there, we're going to be okay. Same thing. These people were heading for the big cities, London and places like that. And they were on the road. And on the road, they were leaving their trash. They were begging for food. They were throwing away rotting food. They were shitting, pissing. They were giving birth. Their corpses were lying on the sides of the roads and the fields. That was how it was. And as they walked toward the big cities, Behind them followed the rats, and on the rats were the plagues. And when the people got into the cities, they compressed, and the infection rates skyrocketed. Now, the Black Plague, mythically, is considered to be the bubonic plague. That's not true. It started with the pneumonic plague, a pneumonia. It didn't kill a lot of strong people, but it weakened immune systems. So when the rats showed up to eat the crap of the people who were teeming in the cities, the bubonic plague began to take its toll. By many estimates, between 25% and 33% of the population of Europe and England died in the plague. And this was in itself an environmental catastrophe. How do you, bodies everywhere. Not enough people healthy enough to bury them and they weren't allowed to burn them. So there you are, a horrible tragedy. But strangely enough, tragedies have an odd way of leading to amazing things afterwards.
Once the plague was over, the survivors had just had enough of the bullshit. They wanted to stop being miserable. They had seen it at its worst and they wanted something better. They wanted to dress in things that weren't miserable, dark blue tunics. <coughs> they wanted to eat food that tasted good. They wanted to see things and hear about things that weren't just out of some uh, uh, Latin translation of the Bible. And so there were a couple of explorers who started prowling. One place was Rome. Now, everyone seemed to believe that Rome was that pile of ruins down there in Italy. Well, a couple of explorers managed to get down there. It was dangerous as hell. You had to go through mountains and bandits and all that. But they went down there. One of them was notable. He was the poet Geoffrey Chaucer. And when they came back, they had stories to tell. Well, tell us about the ruins. Oh, no, it's not ruins. Rome is alive. There are artists. There are writers. There are performers. It is incredible. And you should see what they're doing. Their, their art, it isn't these statues, religious statues. It's people with muscles and sinews naked. Their literature isn't all about the Bible and about religious subjects. It's about love, romance, sex. All of that is there. The artwork is this amazing. It looks like actual people instead of these stick figures we've been drawing. You should see it down there. And so the hunger began. Tell us more. Bring us their food. We want to see this. And so the age of exploration began with explorers saying, we're going to get to China, get those spices that taste so good, and the clothing that's made of silk and all that. We're going to find these places, and we're going to do it in other ways. Never mind Marco Polo and his idiotic track to the east. We're going to go around the world and find the, uh, all of these things. Well, one of those was a fellow named Christopher Columbus. And uh, oddly enough, he ran into this giant pile of continent on a, and islands on his way. But he knew that he could get there. He was not a, well, maybe he was afraid, but he still wanted to do it. But Here's where it comes to business. In order to do this, you need capital. You need lots of capital. Well, where are you going to get the capital? Well, the nobility kind of sucks, but there's come about, because the supply of labor had dropped so much, these powerful guilds, like unions, had begun to form, and powerful families that weren't nobles with massive wealth were across the continent. And so these explorers were going to these wealthy families, like the de Medici's in, your, in uh, Italy and places, people like that, and saying, we should like to go to these other places, and we will bring back stuff. And of course, these are wealthy people. They're not wealthy because they're stupid. They said, okay, what's it going to cost, and how much am I going to make off this? Oh, gee, that means that we have to be able to put together financial statements, projections, and all that. 
Well, strangely enough, in that same time period, there was this monk who lived in a monastery. I believe he had a lifelong vow of silence. His name was Pacioli. And he had invented an accounting system. The same one we use to this very day, a double ledger accounting system. And then, you see, if the explorers could get people to set up these projections in the standardized format, then the families would be more, the wealthy families, the wealthy investors would be more comfortable with financing these projects. In fact, Christopher Columbus, not very well known, he and his brother Bartholomew were on the prowl and one of the ships, the three ships, the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria, that wasn't their actual names at the time, those were made up later, but one of the ships was fully financed by a wealthy investor who said, I will captain that ship. And he did, all the way to the Americas and back, because he wanted to protect his investment, obviously. And so, surprisingly enough, and of course, there was competition for capital. Bartholomew, uh, Christopher's uh, brother, went around and spread vile rumors about other explorers. Uh, Ponce, de de Ponce de Leon was looking for the fountain of youth. And Bartholomew was spreading the rumor around no, he just wants to find a place where there's water that'll make his ED go away. True story. And, uh, but there you go. Capital budgeting and the decision making. Is it a go or is it a no-go? Are the revenues sufficient to cover the cost and the risk? This was the whole point of the Renaissance investments that would return on equity. That's the whole idea. But you had to have a decision-making framework. First of all, you had to have a standardized way to present what you were going to do, hence Pacioli and his double-ledger accounting system, and several others that were around for a while at the time. <coughs> and you had, of course, obviously you needed someone to put that money into these projects. In some cases, you could get, like, Columbus begged and begged Queen Isabella, and she did some financing, but a lot of these explorers were going for private capital through the powerful, wealthy families that had arisen after the Black Plague of the Middle Ages. And so we come to the modern era. Now, strangely enough, there are three ways of deciding whether a project is go or no go. Capital, budget, capital budgeting decision making, to use a fancy way of saying it. The three ways, the first one is ancient. This was the one that they were using at the time, the payback period method. And in modern times, just in the last less than a century, we've got the two modern ways, the net present value and the internal rate of return.
Here's the thing. This payback period method. I have looked at documents from the Renaissance. There is no question that this was what they were using, was this payback period method. Now here's the appalling thing. It is still used to this day. In fact, a survey of corporate finance, uh, treasury officials a few years ago asked treasury officials, okay, what method are you using? Payback period, net present value, or internal rate of return? The plurality, I think it was like 45%, use payback period. It's actually bad. It's terrible compared to these more modern methods, but it is still the predominant way that it's done. I have seen that many times in my consulting days. I don't think there was anyone who was looking for capital to do their project who was using NPV or IRR. They were all using payback period method. What really kind of slammed it home to me was a year or two ago, well, it was last year probably, I was at a corporate dinner and the treasury officials, the head of treasury, was telling about how she had to have a strong, stern lecture with one of her new hires, an MBA, who had used net present value. And she lectured him on how we use payback period method. And he, I mean, he, 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 I mean, I was just sitting there. I, uh, I didn't want to say anything because they were paying for my dinner. Uh, so I had to shut my pie hole. But oh, well, why are you using that stupid stuff? Just payback period method. That's all you need. Just that way, that way. And so this is the way that is still, and that's why you are the generation. We always know that you'll go out there, you keep your mouth shut until you've got power, and then you begin to bring in the stronger, modern, better methods. It's just the way it is. Corporate America is conservative. They don't like new methods and change and all that. And so you have to wait your turn to get into power to take, uh, get your hands on what needs to be done and how we can do it so much better in our time. So anyway, let me show you. Payback period method. I wrote down numbers so that I would have not make any mistakes with this. Suppose that you have, and this will apply to all three of the methods, but we're going to do payback period first. You have um, the year and the free cash flow on this table right here. Now, in year zero, you're going to kick in the initial investment is $50,000. Now in year one, you're going to start to generate some modest revenue, $5,000. In year two, that free cash flow will come up to 15,000. In year three, you'll peak out at 32,000. 
And then year four, as a project is winding down, you'll have $8,000 come in. Now over here, I'm going to write salvage value. First things first, let's say the salvage value is $3,000. Salvage value can be positive or negative, and you always add it on to the last year. And I'm going to say a lot more about salvage value here in a few minutes. Just know that it is crucial that you know the salvage value. You project it when you start the project. And again, salvage value can be positive or negative. One of the great criticisms I have of your uh, homework, uh, the online homework, is they say ignore salvage value. It's zero. It is never zero. Guarantee you. And it can be a very large cash flow, positive or negative, depending upon the situation. We'll get to that in a little bit. Okay, so now, here's how payback period works. The company sets a policy. Payback in three years or less. That's what they say. <coughs> okay. And we're going to do that. We're going to count this up and see what happens. Find a marker that's darker. Oh, that one's a good one. Okay, so here we go. So I'm going to replace this 8,000 with the 3,000 to make the 11,000. At the beginning, you're down, year zero, you're down $50,000. One year in, you're still down but you're down only 45,000 because of the 5,000. In year two, you're still down, but you've got 15,000 more, so you're down to negative 30,000. In year three, you've got 32,000, so you're up $2,000. And in year four, you're up $13,000. So, we cross into positive territory before we get to year three, so this project is a go. I mean, you can even get it down to the month if you want. It'd take the average, yeah. Would we have to know more details than this to get the months or? No, I mean, you can take a, a, a linear spline of negative 30,000 and 2,000 and see where it crosses zero. You could even do a graph of the two and see where it crosses from negative to positive. <coughs> I think the book even shows you a little arithmetic trick to do it. But the bottom line is, this is it. This is how it's done. This is payback period method. In other, and, and in a way, it makes sense. Okay, how long does it take us to recover what we invested? Here's where it falls apart. Two, two things. One is, they're not taking into account the time value of money. That 
That 32,000, that can't be compared to negative 50,000 because the 32,000 should be discounted back three years, as should the 15,000. You should take the present values of those out years, of those years one, two, three, and four. Otherwise, you're comparing apples to oranges. Now, there's a variation on this where you, uh, the discounted payback period method that does that, and then you count the years. But there's still a fundamental flaw. The fundamental flaw is where did the three years come from? I'll tell you where it came from. It came from your butt port. That's where. It, there, there's, I mean, I've run into, I ran into companies back in the day anywhere from two years up to nine years or something like that, seven years. I mean, it's all over the place. You ask them why, why three years? Why four years? As a matter of fact, that, that company I was with, theirs was four years. I'm pretty sure it was four years. And I mean, what, where did the four years come from? It had obviously just that was what they did. They didn't question it. That's just how they played it. That's, that's just it. And that's where the great flaw, you want to leave as little to, well, that's just how we do it, as you can in this world especially when it comes to the technicalities of business. You need best practices at all times, if for no other reason than to cover your ass. But anyway, that's the big problem with the payback period method. But it is literally ancient. It has been around since they started, capital investments started becoming a thing in the early Renaissance, and to this day, Many, many companies use payback period method. And it's kind of like, it's so simple, it, you try to explain it and they'll just look at you with bobbleheads. That's why you have to wait your turn to get us a little bit farther along in our methods. Okay, that's the end of that. Okay, it's a tedious thing, but let me take this off the board now. So we've got the payback period method. I've covered that. And don't ignore it. Like I said, if you may very well be in a company where that's what they do, and so you might as well know how to do it. Now the next method here is the net present value method, the NPV. Now let me, before I go any further, let me talk about briefly about this salvage value. This is ignored far too often. And the consequences, interestingly enough, have always been there, but now they're becoming more manifest. Uh, it's what do you do with the stuff when you end a project? Where does it go? Does it just evaporate? No. I told you a story about this big room here in the basement that's locked up giant old computers and heavy big-ass monitors, dial-up modems, phone systems in big boxes all over the place. It's down there. Now at the time they could have sold that or hell they could have given it to schools. Uh, uh, back in that time when these were, these were, this was the new technology computers, you give it to a bunch of high school kids, they probably could have hacked the world back then. But it just went into a basement. I have seen 
Uh, the most dramatic example I ever saw outside of the military was a company that had this ginormous warehouse where they had old equipment. And I'm talking about like these 1960s and 50s backhoes. And there was this one long, huge wall. I think it was a crane uh, that was just lined up along there. Projects that they had used this stuff for or projects that they had used this stuff for, they were over and so they just put it in a warehouse and they let it sit there. That's, that was revenue. And well, we're, uh, whether or not you sell the equipment or donate and get a tax deduction, whatever, it's still revenue that you have to consider at the salvage at the last year during shutdown. The same way as even though you're buy, not buying inventory to replace old inventory, you're going to sell off the inventory that you have left. Now here's the other side of it. The really dark side is negative salvage value. And I guarantee you that it is now, a, and it has been for a couple of decades, a frickin' nightmare. For example, did you know that computers are environmental waste or hazardous waste? Did you know that? A lot of lab equipment is too. But the real big one is toxic waste. Underground storage tanks that are sitting there rusting out, leaking into the ground and into the aquifers. They never remediated. Uh, giant uh, warehouses of barrels of toxic. They're finding them still to this day. There was no planning at the beginning of the project for what to do with all of this crap at the end. So these companies are now screaming about, well, we're getting lawsuits because these people are just getting nodules all over them. And this was like years ago. Well, guess what? You didn't plan at the beginning. You gave no roadmap for the generation that would have to shut this down. And so they didn't do anything because you didn't put it in the roadmap at the beginning. And so now the people who are dealing with the mess now will piss on your grave because you didn't plan for these things. The private airplane market, back in my time as a private pilot, the prices of airplanes were going through the roof, the little Cessnas and the uh, Pipers and all that, because those planes that were built 20 years before started breaking in the air and killing people. Well, that can't be held to us. You were the engineers. You never planned for those planes. You didn't do anything about planning a decommission, a way to get those out of the stream, the uh, airflow, the traffic uh, flow, air traffic flow. You never planned for it. So here we are, now we're scrambling. We don't have liability insurance that covers this. And here we are getting sued out the wazoo. So guess what? Someone will pay for that down the road. It's better if you plan at the beginning and project the loss. You would be surprised at how many uh, projects would actually be rejected if they had at the beginning recognized and not pretended they didn't exist, those negative salvage values. Out here on, uh, in uh, the, uh, our twin town, city, uh, if you've ever gone down Veterans Parkway, you turn on GE Road going out toward the east, and you'll notice this ginormous 
factory, abandoned, just sitting there looking stupid. Of course, that's, well, what happened? Well, gee, no one seems to want that because the thing is nothing but a ginormous pit of asbestos and possibly toxic wastes sitting in there. And you cupcakes don't want to deal with it. You just want to sell it and lull your way into the uh, future. But guess what? You're not selling the building, so there's your opportunity cost. You can either pay it up front back in the day or you can pay it now down the road. This is what, where you folks come in. It's giving a reality check. Yeah, these are incredible cash-free cash flows we're getting. Yeah, well, wow, let's accept this project. Well, guess what? If you were really serious about it, and if you were the cynic, the bitch in the meetings, the planning meetings, you'd say, let's talk salvage value. And that actually, interestingly, in some cases, that can be the dominant free cash flow is that salvage value there at the end. So keep that in mind as you go out there and become the captains of industry, my good people. But let's uh, go to um, how do you do this? Net present value method is what we're going to do next. And what you're going to do is you're going to need a discount rate. Now I'm going to write a discount rate right here. And I'll put down an 8%. <coughs> now where does the 8% come from? Unfortunately, the most popular method is to use the weighted average cost of capital of the company, the WAC. That's why companies bust their butts to calculate that whack and revise it because that's how you'll discount the free cash flows. That's not a good idea though. Yeah, one good reason is that your whack is the discount rate for the overall risk of the company. You might be taking on a project that has more risk than your average project which would mean that you would want to use a higher discount rate. Or you might be taking on a project that has lower risk than the overall average project risk of the company. And that means you would want to use a lower rate than WAC. But nevertheless, WAC is the, the, the big one for, uh, it's the go-to. What would be better? One way would be to use the CAPM you'd get the, an average beta of companies that did just this project, and you'd put it in the CAPM to get a discount rate. Oh, we're going to start, <laughs> here's a great one. This would happen five, five years ago or so. This company had, uh, it was mostly an ag company, but they decided that they were going to get into the market for making and selling firearms. Firearms, of all things. And of course, their insurance carrier said, no, you're not. They said, uh-huh. No, you're not. And they said, they even said it's a positive NPV project. 
Of course, they were using the company's whack. An ag company has a whack that's pretty low. And then suddenly they're going to decide to take on firearms. The, the discount rate should have been maybe about 18%, but they were applying probably about a 6% discount rate. Whatever. Okay, anyway, what you do is you take the present value of each of those free cash flows, and then you add them up, and then you subtract the initial investment. So I would take 11,000 times 1 plus 0 0.08 to the negative fourth plus 32,000 times 1 plus 0 0.08 to the negative third plus 15,000 times 1 plus 0 0.08 times uh, to the negative second plus 5,000 times 1 plus 0 0.08 to the negative first minus $50,000. And if you think I'm going to do that Right here, you are wrong. I'm going to use this magical thing called a damn calculator to do it. The TI-83 is awesome at this one. Excel is actually a little more of a pain in the ass than, uh, than the calculator. Watch how I do it. Okay, we're going to pop up this happy little calculator here. Now, you're going to say apps, finance, and you're going to go down here, well, they have 7 is NPV. Apps Finance 7. And up on your screen pops NPV open parenthesis. Now, it's probably been 30 years, 20 years since I've done one of these by hand and it still amazes me, this sweet little calculator. You're going to give it the discount rate, eight. Remember the calculator? It's a finance app, so you just put in an eight. Then you put the comma, because you're telling a calculator, here comes the next thing. The next thing you do is you just put in the negative $50,000. <coughs> and then you say, I'm done with that, comma. Now, this is where you open the braces, because what you're doing is you're telling the calculator to start counting years or periods. So to do that, you say second open brace. That's second open parenthesis, second open brace. Now, be careful here, because it's so easy to put a parenthesis there. And then it's hard to see that See, that brace looks on an LCD a lot like a parenthesis. A uh, parenthesis and a brace look very similar. If you get an error, the first thing you should do is go back and see if those are really braces, okay? Now, the numbers you put in here, it's going to be counting the years. So I'm going to put in the 5,000. That's year one, comma. Put in the 15,000. Let's try that again. Put in the 15,000. Comma, that's year two. Put in the 32,000. Comma, that's year three. Now you can either put in 8,000 plus 3,000 or I'll just put in the 11,000 there. That's year four. If there's a zero free cash flow, be sure you put in that zero because you have to let the calculator keep its count right. Yeah? I think you missed a one there. 
Oh, I was just testing you to make sure you were watching me. And you were. That's good. Just one day, I'd like to key in all the numbers right. Okay. <laughs> okay, now, you're going to close the brace because you're saying stop counting. And then just close the parenthesis that started the whole mess up there. And you hit enter. If the number that comes out is a positive, you accept the project. If the number comes out negative, you reject it. It boils down to a yes or no. Survey says $978. Well, spank me. We go with it. So, at a discount rate of 8%, the NPV is $978. Now, don't go doing decimals, pennies with this. It's science, but it's not that exact, for God's sake. So this is a go. Now, interestingly enough, this can cause that immediacy of yes or no based upon positive or negative. It could be $1, it's a go. If it's negative $2, it's a no. And that can really bunch the boxers of people who want these projects. You got an operations management wants a project and it comes out to be negative $86, you say no, it's done, you're gone. Marketing has a great idea for a marketing campaign, comes out with a, an NPV that's negative $286. You say no, and then they, uh, well, they're marketing people, so they bite your ankles. Uh, that's about it. I mean, that's how bad it is, though. It's, this is how we do it. Now, interestingly enough, and I'll just say this once, a lot of times, and we talk about this in corporate finance, the people who want the project will try to game the free cash flow numbers. They'll be generous with their revenues. They'll be very not honest about costs and all that. They'll ignore opportunity costs. So there's, there's politics, numbers politics behind it. But at our level in corporate finance, this is how we do it. Now, let's say that I had done this. And someone had come up to me and said, now wait a minute, fat boy, 8%, you used the wrong number, 8%. You should have used 9%. So I just go, wow, second enter, and I can edit the formula. I just go up to 8% and I replace it with a 9%. And I hit enter. OMG, the project is negative $285 at 9%. It's a reject. Well, hell's bells and pigeon poop. Here's the thing, though. Let me draw this. I'm going to put the discount rate on the horizontal axis. That's discount rate. And on the vertical axis, I'm going to put the NPV. And I'll go 100, 
200, 300, 400, 500 on the vertical, 6, 7, 8, 9, 1,000. And then the other way, 1, 2, 3, 4, negative 500, and on down a little bit. And here I'll put the discount rate. 1%, 2%, 3%, 4%, 5%, 6%, 7%, 8%, 9%, 10%. 10%. And I'm freehanding this. It used to be such a such a tight ass about this. I'd take a yardstick and do everything really. But now, okay, so let me do the 8%. The 8% was up here at almost $1,000. The 9% was down here at almost negative $300. If I connect those with a straight line, That line is called the NPV profile. The NPV profile. And it's usually a straight line. There's, there's a time when it's not, but I'll talk about that later. But that NPV profile is characteristic of a project. Every project will have its own. It'll, some will be steep, some will be shallow. But that's the NPV profile. So I can see that down, I can just look at it. Oh, use a discount rate of 5%. Go. Use a discount rate of 12%. No. I can just look at it and see whether it's going to be a positive or a negative based on that right there. So there's your NPV. That's how you do it. Now, let me take you into Excel here. And... I'm going to make this bigger so I can see it. Okay. I put in the year, free cash flow. Over here, I'll put the discount rate. And I'll even put in salvage value over here. So I could change that if I recalculate and find something. So I'm going to do these years zero, one, free cash flow, negative fifty thousand. Uh, positive 5,000, positive 15,000, <coughs> positive 32,000, and then this will be 8,000 plus, oops, 
I'm going to put in my discount rate, 8%. Now remember in Excel, you have to give it, tell it percent, and that's 3,000. And so, equals 8,000 plus, we'll put that in as absolute reference, F4. There you go. Got the, got the data in. So now, NPV equals NPV, open the parenthesis, give it the rate, comma, just give it the free cash flows. Oh, I got to warn you, this is where Excel sucks. You have to give it, let me back this up. I could have done it then. You have to give it the initial investment separately from the NPV. I almost forgot to do it, and that just drives me crazy. Comma. Give it the positive free cash flows. And it gave it to me as a percent. For God's sake. Scooch that over. Oops. There you go. That's the MPV. That's all you do. Now, watch this. Let me show you something here. Suppose I put in a 9%. Well, I've got a I've got to do something here first, though. So. I got to make these absolute references F4 and F4 to do this trick. Watch this 9%, 10%. I'm still not doing something. Uh, discount rate. Absolute, yeah. Right. Did I not make that? Oh, I didn't. Look at that. Yep. Okay, now drag it down. Oops, didn't mean to do that. Something sucks here still. Yep, sure did. Now I'll try it again. There we go. As you can see, as the discount rate goes up, the MPV goes down. In fact, I should be able to do a little bit of a chart here. There you go. Yeah, that axis is wrong. But there's your MPV profile line right there. Just a little trick, stupid pet trick. I'd have to go in here and edit the label on the horizontal axis because all it's doing is taking observation points. Okay, but anyway, that's that. It's not crucially important. But you do see as the discount rate goes up, the NPV goes down.
Notice, interestingly enough, in this regard, when the Fed raises interest rates, do you see how companies would reject more projects? That is why we worry about interest rates going up, because more projects being rejected means less purchases of new investment capital, uh, new uh, machinery, less new employment. That's why we, that's what the key is to why interest rates drive economies into recessions. Okay, enough of that. Let me show you something here. You see this place right here where the NPV profile crosses the horizontal axis, the discount rate axis. That place has a name. It's called the internal rate of return. The internal rate of return. The internal rate of return is the discount rate that makes the net present value zero. The discount rate, I'm sorry, the internal rate of return is the discount rate that makes the net present value zero. The internal rate of return is the discount rate that makes the net present value zero. The internal rate of return is the discount rate that makes the net present value zero. Now I just gave you that definition four times. So you think that might be on a quiz or an exam? I mean, it's a basic concept. Interestingly, if you tell me the internal rate of return, if you tell me the internal rate of return, I can tell you go or no go. Well, why don't you use a discount rate of 6%? Well, the internal rate of return is something higher, so it's rejected right there. Well, here's the thing though. Let's get the number. Back in, now I'm looking at that, that crappy graph I did there, and I'm looking at about 8.7% IRR. <coughs> Back in the day, imagine you would have to calculate the internal rate, of, uh, the net present value for discount rates back and forth until you got one to the, the, uh, that got you a, uh, an, a NPV that was as close to zero as possible. It was a pain because you did it by hand. What we used to do was we would get engineering graph paper and these mechanical pencils and ruler and we would calculate like I did there too. And then we would very carefully draw the line. And that's how, in practice, we got our internal rates of return. Now we don't need to do that. Let me show you how you do it on the calculator. And I'm going to do a nasty little trick here on the calculator. Watch this. The calculator turned off. Sorry. Anyway. Now, oh God, do we have to key at all these numbers again? No, you don't. Watch. I'm going to edit this NPV formula. And I'm going to go up to where it says NPV. And I'm going to go back to apps. Apps, 
finance. If I go down here to 8, that's IRR. Just hit enter and it will, see how it just overwrote the NPV? One more thing you've got to remember. IRR doesn't need a discount rate. That's what you're finding. So you delete, delete, delete the 9 and the comma and then you hit enter. Hey, that's not bad. The actual, I, I got 8.7 and the actual is 8.77. So not bad at all. So here's how the internal rate of return is used in practice. What a company will do is it will set a hurdle rate policy. Let's say that it sets a hurdle rate policy. of 10%. It will simply say, we will reject any project that has an internal rate of return below, eight per, below 10%. So watch this. Suppose that I have four projects under consideration. Project A, B, C, and D. Let's say the project A has an internal rate of return of 12.20%. Project B has an internal rate of return of 7.68%. Project C has an internal rate of return of 5. Point, well, let's say 5.25%. And Project D has an internal rate of return of 14.10%. Just run it on the calculator or whatever. Well, here's what's going on. If I have NPV and IRR, horizontal is IRR, NPV is on the vertical axis, and I got 1%, 13, 14, 15%, and a few more, one more, 16%. What we're saying with those projects is that Project A, I don't know exactly what its NPV profile looks like, but I know that it crosses the x-axis at 12.2. Well, the hurdle rate right here, at the hurdle rate of 10%, you see how that's a positive NPV project? So we say yes. Project B crosses the horizontal axis at 7.68%. That would be around there. So whatever else I don't know about the profile line, I know that it looks like that. So at the hurdle rate, that thing is big negative. 
Project C is even worse at 5.25%. The profile line crosses at 5.25%. So at 10%, that thing is massively negative MPV. But then Project D out here at 14, a little more than 14%. I mean, that thing at 10%, that thing is very positive. So yes, A, no B, no C, yes D. And again, if the project has a hurdle rate, has an IRR higher than the hurdle rate, then it's a go. If it has a rate lower than the hurdle rate, it's a no. The only problem, this is very popular, but it suffers the same problem as payback period. Where did you get your hurdle rate? I have found companies and where they had the same hurdle rate for 15, 20 years. Even though interest rates in the economy were going up and down, well, we always stick with 10%. So it has that same flaw. There's this subjective, no defense, it's indefensible. Why is this our hurdle rate? Then I've had some companies that set the hurdle rate at the whack, which is absolutely catastrophic because all that means is that they're always going to be taking projects that are riskier than their average. So surprise, surprise, their whack drifts up over time because they keep taking on projects that are higher risk than the whack, than their average project. Okay, I've had enough of you and you've had enough of me. That's all I have for you. I thank you. <laughs>